0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Lucas Be.wald. Lucas is the CEO and co-founder of Weights and Biases. Lucas, welcome to this week in Machine Learning and AI.: oh, Thanks, Sam. Uh Lucas we've known each other for a while now primarily through or at least initially through uh Figure 8 where you were previously the founder and CEO of that company um and actually I think when we first met it was called Crowdflower uh maybe We try to keep things as confusing as possible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, so uh, with that in mind, probably a little bit of history and, and your background is probably a good place to start so we can start to kind of get the decoder ring in place.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, so, yeah, you know, I started my professional career at um, a company called Yahoo. I don't know if you remember them. Um, but uh, Oh, yeah, down back- in Santa Clara? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Back in 2004, 2005, I was actually working to convert their Kind of rule-based system into a machine learning um, ranking system. So you know, ranking search results is one of the first real applications of of ML. And then I went to a startup called PowerSet to do kind of the same thing that became Microsoft Bing. And you know, this is back in maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And, and that was PowerSet kind of
0: initially based in Atlanta. Am I thinking of the right company?
1: No, I don't. I think it was based in San Francisco. Okay. It was—I mean—it was a search, kind of a natural language um, search company. It had a—it had a lot of great ideas. Actually, a lot of the folks um, working there have gone on to do impressive stuff, like the—you know—the GitHub founders were working there, and um, Descartes Labs is another big kind of aerial imaging company. And mm-hmm. So it's kind of—it was, it was a fun place to work. There are a lot of super smart um, people there, and um, it was definitely way ahead of its time, right? Trying to do um, deep natural language processing applied to search. Yeah. Um and, and kind of what I was seeing at both you know the bigger company and the startup was um you know machine learning had tons of promise, um, but you know, tons of obstacles to kind of make it work in the real world. And that's always kind of what's driven me is the you know, the applications of machine learning. And so I founded a company um originally called Crowdflower that became figure eight, which was all about getting high quality training data because that's such a bottleneck for um building and deploying machine learning models. Um but one of the things that I saw when I was when I was running um, Crowdflower and later Figure Eight was that um, there's a lot of problems that happen downstream, right? As people try to you know take the training data and turn it into live production models. And so, you know, I think the next problem that people run into once you have the training data is figuring out a sane way to manage all the experiments that you do when you when you train your models. And so that was the inspiration behind starting weights and biases. Uh, you know. I think uh, every every decade, maybe I do another step in the uh, machine learning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm curious, what is the the craziest thing you've seen in terms of the way people are managing experiments? Like, yeah, you know, I tell people all the time as I'm kind of laying out a, a you know a landscape of you know machine learning and and the the process and how experiment management happens, like. You know, sometimes you're better off if it's not even happening. Like I've seen like crazy file names with like hyperparameters in them and stuff like that. Like, do you see that kind of stuff?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think back to, you know, I remember in, in grad school actually, I was um I was fairly sloppy at managing experiments, which is maybe why I am so passionate about this space. Uh, but I I had a huge single um file that I edit in Emacs and you know, sporadically put notes in for all the things that I tried. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, kind of a crazy file naming scheme, um, you know, that would kind of evolve <laughs> over time, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, actually, when I was starting and uh, Advices, I, um, I spent a lot of time with my friends kind of studying the different ways that people do experiment management. And I actually think the most common approach is, is to have, you know, sets of directors or sets of files and then these days, I think people typically use a Google Doc <laughs> and put notes for um, for each of their runs. And you know, I think everybody, you know, I've, I've looked at lots of different people's, um, you know, Google Docs or or whatever they use. And um, you know, I mean, these are some of the most incomprehensible <laughs> pieces of text. Like I'm, I always wonder if people could actually go back and figure out what they were doing, even you know, a few weeks before.
0: Right, right. So yeah, I mean, I've come across everything from. Post it notes to lab notebooks to Google Docs to spreadsheets to, you know, the crazy thousand character long file name with all of the parameters dot pickle, you know, it's like. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and then you start calling things like dash fixed and then like dash fixed, dash fixed again.
0: <laughs> right, right. Dash final, dash final, dash final. Yeah, final. yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a real, real anti pattern. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
0: So you you kind of did some investigation as you were starting the company and found that people were you know all over the map, kind of tending towards file and directory based uh, experiment management. What issues did that cause for them, or, or was it just fine but not pretty?
1: Well, you know, I think the biggest issue is just um, remembering what you did, right? So it, it actually reminds me a lot of I remember my first. Um, you know, my first job, uh, when I was in college, you know, I kind of a, I had a summer job programming and, you know, honestly, I didn't really know about version control at the time. Didn't really, <laughs> didn't really trust it. You know, I was, mm-hmm. you know, um, not the, the best or most organized uh, programmer. And I remember I would have all these files, um, and, and, and yeah, what was the, really what was the
0: version, me. the, the version control scheme of choice, uh, oh. in your day?
1: Oh yeah. What was it? It was before SVN. It was, um, CVS. CVS. CVS, yeah, CVS. Yeah. That was the first one. I, yep. And uh, I remember using C I remember when I, you know, when I first um, discovered CVS, it was just like, oh man, this is awesome. You know, I can, <laughs> I can actually like, you know, keep track of this stuff and kind of roll back to uh-huh. you know something I did before. But you know, I think the 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 initial pain, right, is um, you know, I remember this originally trying to write papers. You you know, you collect a bunch of metrics on your run that you want to put in your paper, and then you realize, oh, there's actually another metric that yeah, I'd like to include in my table and it's really hard to go back and recreate um, all the past experiments that you did. Mm-hmm. You know, like even even if you snapshot the code, the problem is with um you know, with machine learning, right? There's more than just the code, right? There's the the code and there's the um, hyperparameters that you used and there's the um, the data set that you you input into your run and so um, you know, if you're not careful, it can be really tricky to even, you know, people talk about the kind of reproducibility crisis in in machine learning, right? Because it's hard to reproduce other people's um, runs. But, you know, forget about reproducing other people's runs. Try to reproduce, you know, your, <laughs> your past self, your one month ago self's uh, mm-hmm. runs. You know, I don't know if, <laughs> how many people could actually do that.
0: Yeah, and so the so a big part of that is understanding the the hyperparameters um, and settings associated with a, a given run. But you also mentioned the the data. Are, are, you, are you doing anything there on the weights and weights and biases side, or what are you seeing uh, there?
1: You know, we actually in weights and biases we don't yet like snapshot the data for you or version the data. There are some really interesting. Um, technologies out there we just haven't seen a level of adoption yet that we're sure that something's kind of becoming um, the standard but but we're watching that so we actually just um, we snapshot your um, the status of your code so we'll take not just your your latest um, git commit but any diff from your commit because you know the flow is a little different with ML, where I think people are running lots and lots of experiments and you kind of want to snapshot every point you don't necessarily want to have, um, a git commit or you, you can't necessarily rely on a user to do that um, between each each run that you do so we we snapshot with just your latest commit and then and then a patch um, and then we also um, you know capture hyperparameters. so i think the, the last step is the um, the data but we don't we don't actually um, do that yet although of course if you're using some system where you have some pointer to the the data you have you could input into our system you know like a, a path to your data or um, some output of a, a data versioning system.
0: Yeah, I should mention that by the time this podcast is published, the my ebook will be out on machine learning platforms, and there is a section where I talk about some of the technologies that are out there for data management and versioning.
1: Oh, what are you seeing? I'm curious what what you think. Uh,
0: the ones that I've seen out there are. Um, are the ones that come to mind at least? Are there's a startup called DVC, uh-huh. um, which is like, I guess it stands for data version control, uh, but they also do versioning of models and stuff like that. And there's Pachyderm. Uh huh. I don't have a lot of data on adoption, uh, of either, but from a dedicated to solving this kind of problem, you know, a machine learning problem from a data perspective both of those are probably the the um the pure plays that come to mind but there are also a number of kind of these end-to-end machine learning platforms that come at it from a data perspective or have like some kind of data versioning capability that uh kind of underlies the the way that they handle data in their platforms. And, and we actually had an interesting conversation the last time we spoke about the whole broad structure of this machine learning platform market and how you have all these kind of specialists uh, and then you have all these end to end or kind of wide uh, folks that are trying to address like all, all of the problems in machine learning um, and they all kind of start from somewhere or come at it from some angle. And for some of them, the angle that they come at it from is data management. Totally. But so it sounds like your perspective is that you don't need to fully solve that problem to get to some level of reproducibility or at least kind of useful uh, utility.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe we should step back and sort of say the the sort of value prop of the experiment tracking tool we have. Um, and there's there's sort of three parts to it, right? So, um, you know, one is this kind of versioning and reproducibility, and and we want to make it as lightweight as possible. So we don't to have true reproduci- reproducibility, we'd have to put a lot of kind of constraints around you. And and um, so we just try to track as much as we can um, simply, and you can you can add more things to track. So that but that's just one. Piece of I think experiment tracking um, is the sort of the the versioning. I think the the sort of second piece of experiment tracking is around um, visualizing what's happening. Right. So you know as your model's training, you want to see typically lots of different you know accuracies and loss curves kind of um, over time and over other axes. And you also want to these days compare across tens, hundreds, or we even see um, you know thousands or tens of thousands of experiments and there may be many different ways to look at kind of what's the best model or what's the best set of um, input hyperparameters. So that's, that's sort of a second value proposition that you get really well out of our tool. And then the third thing is um, collaboration, right? So being able to kind of share the work that you did um, with a colleague or with someone at a different organization or even with your future self um, in a way that, um, that they can understand. So you kind of get all of those things with our tool and you sort of get them to the extent that you buy in so you know a big thing for me is actually not to build a kind of end-to-end platform that's super heavyweight that requires um, a lot of upfront cost Um, so we try to make it you know just two or three lines of code that you add um, to your working thing and it can run anywhere you know, can run on amazon it can run on in a Jupyter notebook um, it can run um, on prem all the all these things kind of work and then you get reasonable defaults and then as you kind of add things like hooking us up to your, um, git state, hooking us up to your data version control, hooking us up to your, um, underlying platforms, then we're able to kind of give you more things and sort of the more information that you give and the more that you tell us about your specific state, the more we can give you full reproducibility.
0: What are the, the couple of lines of code that you're inserting to get started doing?
1: So, so basically, on, the, on, on your client side, we have a, a Python library, right? So you basically do a pip install, um, WNB, um, and then you import our library. Um, and then, actually, if you're using Keras, we have a one-liner um, that will um, instrument your code, so you'll actually get a lot of value in, in a single line. Um, if you're using PyTorch or TensorFlow, it's maybe two or three lines you call WNB.init, um, and you pass in your um, configuration. And then in PyTorch, you call WNB Watch on your model. In TensorFlow, we use um, a hook. So you'll you'll basically use a WNB um, hook so that during your um, training, it keeps reporting um, to our model. And and also, if you're using TensorBoard, we have a different way of, of kind of integrating. So we've basically you know, kind of worked with the sort of status quo of how people um, monitor things today and kind of made a really lightweight way to, to connect to that.
0: And so you're using whatever native model introspection tools are available through these frameworks to figure out things like the model type and parameters and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to pass that in explicitly to the library.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we figure out what we can, you know, so, you know, Keras and, 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 um, TensorFlow and PyTorch all have different ways of doing this. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll take your, you know, TensorFlow flags or your, um, you know, your Keras config parameters and we'll save those. But, you know, if you want to save extra stuff, um, we make that really easy. It's just a single line of um, essentially it's a dictionary of um, of inputs and you can add to that dictionary.
0: You mentioned PyTorch and TensorFlow and Keras. Uh, These are all deep learning frameworks is uh, is deep learning the only use case for weights and biases? Uh, Do you tell folks to look elsewhere if they're trying to do experiment map? Experiment tracking for more traditional models or not using one of these uh, frameworks?
1: Mostly. So, you know, our application is framework agnostic in the sense that you can use it with any framework, right? So you can do the configuration tracking and the logging um, with, you know, with scikit-learn or XGBoost or anything like that. I think that where experiment tracking becomes more valuable is when your experiments take longer or you want to do complicated hyperparameter searching. Mm -hmm. And we see more of that um, with deep learning. So just as a company, we've really focused on um, deep learning and these frameworks to kind of give you these magical installs. If you're using a different framework, it's going to take you some more lines. Although, you know, we've had people, we've had the community basically submit a integration for um, fast.ai. So Mm -hmm. we now have a, you know, community provided fast.ai integration. And then um, we had an enthusiastic employee build a um, JAX integration. I don't know if anyone... Do you, do you know Jax? It's What's a, Jax? It's like a newer, kind of even lighter weight. Um, I guess you, you might call it a deep learning framework. And then um, we have started to see people use us with uh, XGBoost and Scikit-Learn. So we're working on kind of making that more native.
0: And we did a, uh, a study group, one of our, our study groups associated with the Twilio meetup, was studying or working through the uh, full-stack deep learning course by uh, Peter Abil and and others. And I guess weights and biases is like a standard part of that course or something that you're told about and and told to install in the course. Because we had a bunch of chatter in our Slack about weights and biases and people sharing screenshots and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, and we saw a bunch of um, of Twimmel folks uh, come in from that, which was which was fun for us. Oh, awesome! And by the way, anyone listening, you should you should just know if you reach out to our our little chat in the bottom right, it's not um it doesn't go to like some sales rep. It mainly goes to me, so <laughs> I'm happy to uh, <laughs> to give you tech support. And, and please reach out and and tell us, um you know, kind of who you are. It's you know, we're not so big that we don't um you know kind of want to know what people's issues are.
0: So the first of these kind of main value props is versioning, um, and we've we're primarily talking about keeping track of your model parameters, uh, your models as well. You're not tracking those; you're just connecting or kind of tracking uh, Git commits of the models themselves. Is that right? Well, Once so
1: again, everything is sort of you know opt in, right? You know, so so we work with people that you know have various levels of sensitivity, so. Um, and and we really you know we have a strong point of view here where I really don't want to be a end to end framework where you have to buy into everything to get value. Yeah. Um, so you know if you want us to, we'll keep track of your your Git SHA and we'll keep a patch against the Git um, your latest Git commit so we'll know the state of your code if you want us to. Also, if you want us to, we'll save your um, model files either during training or at the end of training. So or, or any actually any other artifact that is important for running your model. So. There is a saving component to this, which is important to a lot of our, our users.
0: If you don't already have a pipeline built out that programmatically saves your model parameter someplace and commits your code someplace, all in the context of a run, you could do that all through weights and biases, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you already do have some kind of um, pipeline where it's somewhere saved, then maybe the best thing to do is just actually save a link to it um, in our application. Yeah, you know, the important thing is that um the run gets associated with all the, the files you'd need to reproduce it.
0: Okay. And, and so the next thing that comes up is uh visualization. And when I think about like versioning and, and like saving model parameters and visualization, the first thing that comes to mind for me is TensorBoard. Are are you trying to compete with that or replace it or do they complement each other somehow?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's super complimentary. So, you know, one thing that we actually do, which people find useful, is we will host your TensorBoard. So, if you send us a TF events file as an artifact, um, you know, we recognize that and we'll actually pop open a hosted um, TensorBoard for you in the cloud. Um, you know, my big issue there, there's sort of two things, two ways that we improve on um, TensorBoard, which I actually think is an excellent tool. Um, you know, the, the 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 first thing that we improve on is that. Um, TensorBoard tends to be ephemeral, so you know you, you typically run it locally, and you know one thing we I saw a lot when I went around um, and talked to folks about how they were doing their experiment tracking today is they were literally taking screenshots of their um, TensorBoard and and posting it into Slack, <laughs> and that that seems a little um, you know that seems like a little crazy to me. Or I guess it seems like there's an opportunity for um, that to be hosted forever, right? So if you um, if you use weights and biases. Then all this stuff, all these graphs that you make, and all the um, all the runs that you do, they're hosted forever or is until you delete them um, in the cloud. So I think that's a much better practice, right? Because you know if you shut down your TensorBoard server, um, you know you, your colleagues may still want to look at what you're doing, right? So that, that the the sort of like static permanent URL is kind of the first improvement I think that Weights and Biases has. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing um, is I think that TensorBoard starts to struggle when you're comparing lots and lots of models with lots and lots of data points
0: uh, elaborate on that where in particular does it struggle
1: so there's kind of two ways that it can struggle right so one is if you if you run a model over millions and millions of um, data points it doesn't um ever really start to sample right so you know if, if you have a run that that you know you run it for like a couple weeks um you know it uh it can just be actually literally slow um, super slow, right? To to run it even in your browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is that if you want to compare lots of runs, I don't think that TensorBoard was kind of originally designed for that. So there is ways to compare, you know, three, four, five um, runs. But what we typically see is people will do, you know, hundreds or thousands of runs with different, um, you know, kind of hyperparameters and configurations, and they want to mark some as, hey, you know, these were baselines, and you know, here's what I was doing here, and here's what i was doing here. And you know the typical way people do it in TensorBoard is they start to do that crazy long um, file name thing, and then kind of search over them with regular expressions. And um, <laughs> you know that just it doesn't scale, right? So when you do, right. um, you know, when you when you're really doing like serious um, evaluations, I mean, I, I don't want to knock on, on TensorBoard at all. I think it's a it's a great tool. Or regular
0: um, expressions.
1: Like said, <laughs> or regular expressions. I love regular expressions. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, you know, yeah, good point. I d- definitely don't want to. Um, insult regular expressions um, but um, I think that uh, we have a tool that's more designed for a, a, kind of where you get to down the road when you have you know hundreds of runs and you want to kind of filter and group things um, in different ways. And I should say it is a, it can be a little tricky to monitor things on kind of big distributed runs so when you're running across like multiple machines, um, that's also a case that we've really focused on at, at weights and biases.
0: Some kind of a distributed training scenario where you're you've got multiple machines training a single model.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of it makes sense if you're running on multiple machines or a single model um, to have everybody kind of reporting to like a single centralized place, mm-hmm. um, you know, versus everybody writing out you know kind of files locally. You know, I think it's just different different design goals, and so um, I would say I would say weights and biases is complementary with um, TensorBoard, but it is kind of the closest. I'd say it's the most common experiment tracking thing that we that we see today. So it is the right place to compare weights and biases.
0: Uh, and so then the third uh, element that you mentioned is collaboration. Uh, I imagine just having that static URL is uh, not having to screenshot and send it in Slack. It probably uh, is a starting point for that collaboration, but the, are you doing something explicit uh, around collaboration?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, so I think Adrian uh, Guiden was on your podcast from TRI and, and talked a little bit about um, using our tool for a collaboration. But, um, you know, they've, they've sort of talked about it publicly and, you know, OpenAI has kind of done a case study with us and how they use us to um, collaborate. But I think, I think a lot of it is just around um, helping people get more systematic about their training so that it's possible for other people to pick up your work. And, you know, the regular profession thing we talked about is a great example, right? Like if you put in little notes in your run names for your hyperparameters, that might make sense to you, but it could be really hard for your colleague um, to come in and do a similar analysis if they don't know, um, you know, what your, <laughs> you know, exactly what your run names mean and right. and what you were doing. So, you know, we make it a lot easier to have human-readable names and then also share your projects with your colleagues. So, what happens is, you know, you can you can basically set up a report. And you can, you can put notes in that report and like literally type out, okay, here's what I was doing here. Here's the different runs. And then a colleague can, you know, go in and look at any of those individual runs and see what happened. And then also look at the aggregate um, statistics and then also kind of build their own um, analysis. So I think where where Weights and Biases becomes this like really beloved tool um, is when our, our customers start to use it for collaboration because that's just something you kind of can't get out of anything else, at, at least right now. You know.
0: Doesn't sound like though that you're necessarily trying to build the I don't know what you would call this thing the enterprise Facebook for models or something like that where like every user has a feed and all of their runs go in their feed and people are commenting on each other's runs and that kind of thing.
1: No, I mean I think um, I think what we want to do is support you know discussions outside of our tool. I mean I think there's lots of good ways to you know so you have a Slack integration you know so you can you can post this stuff into Slack. Um, I don't think that that machine learning has necessarily that different of a workflow that we want to, you know, try to try to make our own version of a, a, a feed. Um, although I, I would say you know, we are experimenting with a thing that's been I've been really excited about called benchmarks, where people can collaborate across um, organizations. So we can take an open source um, you know machine learning project um, and then people around the world can submit their results on it right so they can they can modify the code and show their accuracy on you know their own data sets or their own setups and so
0: have you done any of those what's an example of, of a project that and some you know folks submitting these benchmarks
1: yeah so you can find them on our website but I think I'm, one that was kind of fun was you know Giphy, the the company gave us a whole ton of gifs of cats. And so we did kind of a video frame um, prediction benchmark. So, you know, you get the first five frames, I believe, and then you predict the next five frames. And so, you know, what we actually saw was all the kind of different strategies that people use for um, video frame prediction, how well they work on this data set. But what I thought was particularly cool about the, the way the benchmark was set up is that you can actually go in and look at all the different submissions, um, models, and all of their kind of um, data in a standardized way um, or even kind of sort the submissions based on you know different metrics and than pixel distance. So you know different algorithms might work better depending on your end metric. And, and you know we have all the different models that people submitted. And then you know we're doing one now on um, you know drought prediction. You know to kind of help um, to help folks you know figure out where, where droughts are happening. It's actually sort of a apparently like a cactus identifier because you know they, they, the the state <laughs> of the art it's just like using the amount of green. But the problem is you know cactuses are green and you know, that can be like a challenge to um, to kind of know where, 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 you know, droughts are happening on like a small scale. And, you know, we have a whole bunch of other benchmarks. It's kind of a new feature, so it's still, um, uh, we're kind of still seeing how people use it. But um, what I like about it is that I think there is a lot of room for collaboration across teams. And there's sort of a rich kind of culture of it in, in machine learning, because so much of it comes out of academia, right? But, um, you know, I think one of the challenges with when you get a research paper is that, you know, you get a small table results, but you don't get to see all the different things that the researcher tried and all the, you know, kind of all the paths that they went down that, that didn't work. But, um, you know, if, if their stuff is instrumented with weights and biases, you can actually have this really um, detailed record of, of lots and lots of different things and, and kind of start from any point in the process.
0: Has anyone done that? Have you seen a paper that cited one of these static URLs with uh, all of their experimental results?
1: Yeah, we just had our first one actually. So oh, know, really it's pretty new, and the, and the you know the paper publishing process is long, but yeah, we actually just we just had our first one.
0: What was the paper?
1: I mean, I think we'll see a lot more uh, down the road because we did make our we make our product um, free for academics because we really like this use case. But this was called uh, machine learning techniques for detecting identifying linguistic patterns in um, news media.
0: Is that literally what they did? They kind of gave the static. Weights and biases, link and You can go in and look at all of their various experiment runs, or
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we probably should make a more systematic way to do this, but um, <laughs> they have a citation, uh, you know, for their report, so you can go in and look at their, you know, look at their report and and, and get more detail.
0: When you're talking to folks that are uh, outside of academia on the enterprise side and They're, you know, getting serious with deep learning and starting to figure out how they can build some more structure around their approach. What are the, I guess I have a bunch of questions around your experiences there. Are there, are there, do you find cultural issues, quote unquote, around, you know, them adopting a tool like this or some are there patterns around which teams are more likely to kind of get it and, you know, want it? Or, um, is it, is it kind of random?
1: No, no. I mean, we've, we've designed this tool with a really particular end user in mind. Um, so this is a tool for researchers that are working on deep learning. So we work with companies that have, um, researchers that are training deep learning models. And we tend to work with you know, companies that are making a bigger investment in that today. So, you know, we work with folks like, um, you know, GitHub and, and, you know, Blue River, which was bought by John Deere, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, a whole bunch of kind of robotics and, and aerial imaging companies. And, and that's, that's because those are the companies that are right now making the biggest investments in deep learning. And so, you know, our strategy has been, you know, rather than kind of focus on the sort of mass democratization of, of AI to focus on, let's, let's look at what the companies that are, um, most advanced doing and make the bet that other companies are going to follow along and do kind of similar techniques. So, you know, a lot of people disagree with that strategy and they say, well, you know, you should build, you know, the, the tools that, um, you know, Procter and Gamble needs is very different than the tools that, you know, maybe a, an open AI or a, a Google needs. Um, but I guess my perspective is, is a little different. I think that, you know, I think that that, Procter and Gamble may not be training lots and lots of deep learning models, They are training some. I think that over time they're going to train more and more, and they're going to want to bring that expertise in house. So I want my tool to make things, you know, easier for for machine learning researchers. But I don't necessarily want to make the machine learning research jobs lead or kind of, um, you know, automate every every part of the process. Like you know, some of these like um, you know, auto ML types of of projects. So we typically go in, we, we typically get adopted by researchers inside of companies and then end up selling a larger license as the um, business decides they want to standardize on our tool.
0: And you, you're describing this target user as a researcher. Is that uh, universal or do you find that the user is split across folks that are formally called researchers and data scientists, machine learning engineers, and <laughs> the other things we see?
1: Well, of course. I mean, Sam, you, you know this market well, also, right? I mean, the titles is total chaos, right? So <laughs> <it's>,
0: <laughs> I was kind of getting it that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as as you know, right? It's 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 hard to tell, um, you know, these days from a title what someone's actually doing. The important thing to us, really, like our, our kind of qualifier, is that they're actually training, um, you know, machine learning models and and generally training at least some of the models in one of the frameworks that we have kind of first order support for So that's, you know, as I said, Keras, TensorFlow, PyTorch, or, you know, maybe fast AI. So those are the folks that are are most likely to benefit um, from our tool.
0: Have you come across folks that are using fast AI? I don't know if commercially is the right word or organizationally, like, you know, at a company or a research organization, Meaning um, outside of the kind of educational context?
1: Yeah, I, I would say yes. It's not, I would say it's not, um, it's mostly in an educational context. And sometimes it's a little um, hard to tell. I think educational products and some of these orgs can bleed into <laughs> production products, you know, yeah, like, it, yeah. you know, gradually. Um, so um, we we actually, honestly, we do see some fast AI. And stuff that looks like it's headed towards production. I don't know that it, I could point to something where it's actually going to get deployed, but you know, it is really PyTorch, um, you know, under the hood. And I, I would say, right? One insight that I have is we do see PyTorch in a production context a lot more than I think, um, you know, its reputation would have you believe. So mm-hmm. um, people are definitely deploying PyTorch successfully into real-world applications. So I, I don't see why FastAI wouldn't allow you to do that. I mean. You know, folks have different opinions about fast AI, you know, some, some seem to love it, some seem to hate it, but I think it, you know, I think if somebody really loved it, it it shouldn't be out of the question to deploy it.
0: Yeah. Um, do you, is there any interaction with, uh, tools like Onyx here?
1: Um, not really. We, we haven't seen a lot of Onyx. I mean, we've seen that file format used to save, um, models, uh, occasionally, Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, we, we I haven't noticed a lot of that.
0: You know, if you think about the machine learning pipeline, are they, what are the things that are, you know, I guess we've talked about uh, some of the things that are like immediately upstream or downstream from you. You know, there's Git repositories and collaboration mm-hmm. and things like that. Are there uh, things that, you know, folks really need to have in place in order to, take advantage of experiment management or things that, you know, once you have experiment management, oh, wow, this whole new world opens up for you and you can do X, Y, Z.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's funny, it's funny to say this, but I think some folks, you know, come in, and don't realize this. I mean, you do need to actually be doing experiments to take advantage of experiment. <laughs> management <software>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know, you know, to be fair, it's it's not totally trivial, right? So, you know, to actually start training, you know, deep learning models, you need a, you need some folks with experience in that. You know, you need machines that can do that, and and a lot of te- people want kind of a software layer that helps them with that. So we made a fair amount of effort to integrate um, with with um, the different stuff that we see. So you know, we see a fair amount number of folks using SageMaker. So you know, we built a first class integration with that. We see a lot of excitement around. MLflow and Kubeflow. So we've built integrations with those tools. I mean, our, our vision is to just run on top of, um, anywhere that people want to train their models.
0: MLflow and Kubeflow sound so similar when you say them like that, but they're totally different things. I would have thought of MLflow, or I, I tend to think of MLflow as more of a alternative to what you're doing. Whereas Kubeflow is like more infrastructure and orchestration.
1: Yeah, but they kind of bleed into each other, right? So, Kubeflow I think of as more infrastructure and orchestration. I think MLflow, um, you know, at least what they tell me is that they're kind of trying to be more of a sort of standard um, set of APIs around um, training. Um, and so, of course, as they become kind of a standard way that different, um, you know, ML services can talk to each other, we want to we want to work with them. Yeah. But yeah, good point. It's funny, as I I say all these things, I'm thinking this podcast is going to be so out of date (laughs) in six months.
0: Well, you know, that is (laughs) a challenge. When I did the Kubernetes ebook, and that was published last November, and on the one hand, I was racing to get it ready for (laughs) KubeCon in in Seattle, but then there was a whole bunch of stuff that was announced that totally uh, made a good chunk of it obsolete you oh, know and there's a bunch yeah. of updating that needs to be done and and this uh, the ML platforms paper it probably mentions I don't know there's probably like 30-50 tools or something that are mentioned in this thing and I'm sure you know within a month of being published some of them will be acquired some of them will be will disappear some of them will evolve as kind of you know de facto standards or market leaders or whatever it's it is such a chaotic um, and, therefore, exciting marketplace and time to be, you know, in and following this marketplace.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess you have you have the hardest job of <laughs> trying to keep track of all this.
0: It it is crazy. It is crazy how much activity is happening in this space.
1: Yeah. So anyway, you know, I think up, upstream, you know, we, we try to integrate with people just as, as folks, you know, ask for us. And people typically have, you know, some kind of platform to do their runs, some kind of, sometimes some kind of um, pipeline management or workflow management. Um, you know, they often have kind of a training data solution. Um, I strongly recommend figure eight and I'm totally unbiased. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> the... <laughs> um, and then, um, you know, downstream from us, um, you know, there's um, production, deployment, I think is kind of the next, um, the next step. And, um, you know, we mostly see folks doing that, um, on an ad hoc basis, although, you know, we've started to see a whole bunch of companies around that. So I'm sure that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to start, um, start picking up, you know, as, as this as stuff becomes more real and, and, and people start to care about that more.
0: Is, is there anything else we should cover before we wrap up or any kind of parting thoughts?
1: No, you know, I just want to say, you know, the, it's a big goal for me is to make make our software really, really easy to try and really low kind of lock-in. So, you know, I guess my, my ask to folks, you know, if you've listened this far, <laughs> you probably get more <laughs> out of spending five minutes um, integrating weights and biases um, into, into your tool. So, you know, it, it really is like a kind of a five-minute install. Um, and we make the product free for individuals and free for you know, academics and, um, easy to export your data. So hopefully it's, it's pretty low commitment because, you know, my goal here is that, you know, everyone, you know, gives our experiment tracking tool just a to try and, and, you know, if they have any questions or concerns, they, you know, write into our little intercom bubble and, um, ask for help.
0: Well, we will be sure to point folks to a, uh, a place where they can find weights and biases and do that, explore it more you you refer to it as software but it is software plus like software as a service right it's there's a yeah, you're accessing the the dashboards and the visualizations through your website do you have folks uh asking you to make it available kind of behind the firewall or on-premises
1: yeah we're selling that today
0: oh you are um, okay so
1: yeah for example toyota uses it in that way and, and okay we're doing lots of installs like that yeah
0: cool Uh, Well, Lucas, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Very, uh, very fun conversation. Always learn a ton.
1: (laughs) Likewise.
0: All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.